This is episode number 28 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jesse Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Two Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell. And Anita Lambert. And Jess and I are super excited today to have our expert guest on. We've had a lot of private messages from a lot of our listeners who are expecting or new moms around the topic of nursing. So Taya Griffin is a lactation consultant in the Toronto area. She is passionate about prenatal breastfeeding education and sees mothers at home, in the hospital, and in the clinic setting postpartum to help them reach their breastfeeding goals. She has two daughters whom she wishes were still babies, and alas, they're growing up too quickly. So thank you so much, Taya, for being on. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I was just telling some friends I could speak about breastfeeding all day long, so... I now get to speak to an audience. It's fantastic. Yeah, excellent. And is there anything we didn't cover in the bio that you would love to share with our listeners? I think the one thing I'd like to share is that I came to breastfeeding in a very uh, in a very roundabout way. I started in corporate, and then I moved to become a yoga and Pilates instructor. Then I became a homeopathic doctor, and I loved working with pre and postnatal um, moms and babies. And then I decided, well. I just love also the whole birthing world. So I, I studied to become a doula while I was actually in doula school. I mean, it was just a weekend course. I met a fantastic lactation consultant who kind of set me on this path of um, of just this, this passion to help breastfeeding moms and of course their babies. Um, but I myself was not breastfed. Um, so it, 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 it is interesting how, um, how it's kind of come, uh, at me in a roundabout way. Uh, and, and that it wasn't something that I actually, actually have personal experience doing. I do have breastfed both of my babies for a long time, but, um, but it is something that uh, that I'm surprised I'm so passionate about. But it is such an incredible uh, relationship between a mom and a baby. And I, I'm just so delighted to help moms to reach their individual goals. Every mom has different goals. Uh, and um, and yeah, I just I, I just love it. I love talking about it. and I love helping moms do it. That's incredible. I'm interested before I get to our first question here. Did you work with a lactation consultant when you were breastfeeding your babies? I was fortunate already to be observing at the Newman Breastfeeding Clinic. And two of my lovely colleagues, one of which now lives in uh, Vancouver, actually did stop by. And I did have a lot of issues. I went to the Newman Clinic. I went back to the place that I was working at. and, um, And I actually... I uh, had to get the prescription for the antibiotics for mastitis and suffered from a lot of block ducts. I went, uh, I went and got my one of my daughter's um, tongue ties released there. So yes, I had a lot of support from um, from my lactation consultant colleagues at the time. Um, and thank goodness I knew that those resources number one existed and that uh, and when to reach out to see someone because things were not going right. And I think that's really the key is uh, when do I see a lactation consultant? When, when, when is, when are things a problem? Um, and then knowing where to turn to for, for good help. I was just saying before we jumped on to start recording this episode that I'll probably need to breastfeed a baby during this and he's here now. So if there you go. <laughs> if you're here, baby, that's what's that's going great. on. Uh, okay, so talk to us about how a lactation consultant actually works with clients, what that might look like in hospital, home, or clinic. Sure. So more and more, I find that I have clients connecting with me before birth. I do a lot of um, work 
prenatally with moms, um, giving complimentary talks at various locations, but also teaching prenatal breastfeeding classes. And a lot of these moms reach out to me and say, this is my due date. Are you around? And I always have to tell them just because it's your due date doesn't mean that I'll be seeing you that day. But always uh, give your partner my number and text me when you go into labor. And then I'll hold a spot in my schedule for you. When you give birth, um, we will we'll plan on a time to meet. So uh, that is what I'm seeing more and more, which is wonderful. It's people who have decided, I don't really want to have trouble. I don't want the sore nipples. I don't want to be concerned that my baby is or isn't getting enough. So, uh, so that is definitely one route. And I'll see many of those moms in the hospital because we'll try to get breastfeeding established right away. And then sometimes we'll have a follow-up if necessary, sometimes not. Uh, and then there's the home visit piece. So sometimes I'll see those moms for home visits. And if I haven't connected with them prenatally, then many moms reach out to me because they're sore nipples, because, you know, three weeks into it, things don't feel right. I've seen babies as old as 13 months who are, you know, just having different concerns about breastfeeding or even the introduction of solids in conjunction with breastfeeding. Uh, and then I also am fortunate to um, to staff the lactation clinic um, at Kid Crew, which is a lactation clinic here in Toronto. And in a clinic setting, we can do things like release tongue ties. So a tongue tie is, is a challenge to breastfeeding because it inhibits the movement of a baby's tongue and makes it harder for them to latch and sometimes more painful for mom. Uh, and then we can prescribe different, um, different medications that mom or baby might need for various issues. So it really depends on what a mom feels she needs at the time. Uh, and, and, and those resources usually are, exist in each city, you know, someone that can either do hospital visits, home visits, or good clinics. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And the fact that you brought up about prenatal care, because mm. um, when my husband and I lived in Toronto before we had my daughter, um, we did a group class at the Newman Clinic. Mm, um, yes. About a month before my due date, and we both thought it was the best thing ever. Yeah, um, yeah. Any information I feel like beforehand just makes things smoother after. And if you have a partner, they can watch out for things that you may not notice. So exactly. I think it's really interesting that you work with moms prenatally as well. It's and actually so one of my biggest passions because I feel like knowledge is power. And I do feel like moms, myself included, spend a lot of time concerned and rightfully about the birth. But as I tell moms when I give these um, complimentary information sessions or when I teach my prenatal breastfeeding classes is your birth is going to last, let's say, if you're lucky, like three hours, you know, and sometimes they might last for much longer and be much more complicated, but then it's over and you have a baby. And if you follow World Health Organization recommendations, you're breastfeeding exclusively a baby for six months. And then with the introduction of complementary foods at the six-month mark, the World Health Organization and the Canadian Pediatric Society follow suit. We should breastfeed our babies to two years and beyond. So that's a lot longer than, say, maybe the 48 hours maximum that you'll spend in labor. Uh, and yet very few people actually even consider the act of breastfeeding and what it will mean to them and their partner, the, the, the dyad, their, their whole household uh, before they give birth. And knowledge is power. So whether it's reading the section of the textbook that you purchased Usually it might just be a few pages at the end about breastfeeding, whether you attend a breastfeeding class, even if you ask a friend who is breastfeeding, can I please watch you instead of you covering up? I'd really like to watch you breastfeed. And then, of course, there's La Leche League, which is an amazing organization of women who volunteer their time, who that run meetings and go and attend the meetings again, watch breastfeeding and ask many questions about um, about the breastfeeding experience that you might have. So knowledge is power. And yes, preparing beforehand makes a huge difference to your expectations. And also, you will know when it when it is the right time to call someone for help when things are really just not going right. And hopefully, hopefully that'll be sooner rather than later. So that's actually our, our next question is, can you take it? Let, um, let our listeners know what would be like, how would a mom know if the latch, if there's an issue with it? Cause I think a lot of moms just assume, okay, it's going to be painful. I just have to push through it. 
But something I learned in that group class was no pain was a sign that there's something up with the latch and that that needs to be looked at. So is there any, any tips you can give our listeners about that? Yes, I would say that there is some degree to which sensitivity might be normal. I'll always tell my moms prenatally, if you haven't had someone suckling on your breasts or nipples eight to 12 times a day for say between 15 and 30 minutes, the chances are you will have some sensitivity. There, there will be something felt. I have, I have absolutely run into the odd mom who absolutely is like, no, I don't feel anything. There's even with babies that might not have great latches. They just have less sensitive nipples, but but some sensitivity is normal. But when it extends to the point where you feel you can't take your baby on to the breast, when you just are dreading them waking up, when there is cracks and blood and, um, and, and sensations, many of my clients will say like glass shards cutting the tip of the nipple, those, n- none of that is normal. And all of that uh, warrants Uh, getting someone to look at the latch, whether it's a doula that they've hired who may have a few tips, whether it's a nurse in the hospital that hopefully has some tips, uh, whether it is their midwife, whether it is attending a breastfeeding clinic or, or, or if none of those work out, seeing someone in private practice, it's really important because the latch is not just about pain. The latch is also about good transfer. So when we feel pain, chances are our baby is not optimally removing milk from the breast either. They are suckling just on the tip of the nipple with very little breast tissue in their mouth, which means that they're not removing the milk from the breast as well. This can lead to to painful feeds, but also to long feeds uh, where babies fall asleep on the breast and babies are not getting enough. And and then mom is supplementing and having to pump. And so a good latch really, besides it being pain-free, is about so many other um, important aspects around breastfeeding. Those are such good points that it's important for me to remember that now, again, four <laughs> weeks into breastfeeding another Totally. Baby. Yeah, and just that I, I think that that's so smart and so important for us to hear. And that's what we've been working on to the latch in order to ensure that baby was getting enough fat into the body Uh, and hopefully that was helping us will help us sort out some reflux issues perhaps right right Um, yeah so that was important for me to hear from my lactation consultant and I appreciate you saying that here too so what about tongue ties and lip ties because this is a big conversation that goes all along with what my clients are talking about in terms of their breastfeeding journeys. How prevalent are they and what are the pros and cons to clipping them or just leaving them and letting Mm -hmm. it go? What I see in in clinic and in private practice is not necessarily a snapshot of what the entire population of breastfeeding mothers would see their babies experience. I'm seeing babies that are having (coughs) troubles with breastfeeding. And to that end, um, I do see many babies in my practice that have tongue tie. So I'm probably seeing a much higher incident of tongue tie than you would see if you examined every breastfeeding baby's mouth. Um, but definitely tongue ties can play a major role in how breastfeeding is going. And it's not the degree to which the tongue um, has restriction So for the listeners who aren't sure what tongue tie is, essentially the frenulum is the piece of tissue that connects the base of the tongue with the base of the mouth. And there's also a lip frenum, which connects the upper lip to the gum line. And when that's too tight, it can restrict motion of the tongue. And as it restricts motion of the tongue, baby has way more trouble latching onto the breast. And when they do latch on, often they'll cause the mother pain or they won't be able to move enough of the milk out of the breast because the tongue has to really lap up a lot of breast tissue and then undulate in this wonderful peristaltic motion to draw the milk out of a lot of the breast. Uh, And when the tongue can't reach that far out, baby, baby has really slow feeds. Baby has inefficient, ineffective feed and often will start to flick the nipple and really cause a lot of pain for for mom and this frenulum or this 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 um this tongue tie can either be right up towards the tip of the tongue which is more of an anterior tongue tie 
or it can be further back, which is a posterior tongue tie. And neither of these are an indication as to whether it's going to be a worse situation uh, than, um, than the other. In other words, a posterior tongue tie, unfortunately, is one that goes really unnoticed by many Many practitioners, in fact, even some lactation consultants, posterior tongue tie can actually be almost the worst because no one notices it. Whereas an anterior tongue tie, which is when baby lifts their tongue and you just see this thick white tissue that is just tethering the tongue to the base of the mouth. Sometimes that doesn't cause as serious breastfeeding issues as the um, as the one that is a little less recognizable. But when uh, when we notice, and we don't just look at it, we do a full oral examination, and then we watch the feed and take a full history, we notice that it really is affecting breastfeeding. And often a really good solution to the, um, to the tongue tie is to actually get a tongue tie release um, or phrenectomy, which can uh, just release that tissue and allow the tongue much freer movement. Uh, and we recommend it a lot at the clinic that I that I work um, uh, with because we do do it there uh, because we've witnessed that breastfeeding is just is really being impacted by by the tongue tie. And um, just earlier, I was chatting with Jess. I know her first daughter, um, so Steele didn't have a tongue tie, but Pippa, my daughter, did. Mm. And we had an interesting experience because no one actually noticed it until she was six weeks. Um, I had I had no pain. I had a ton of milk. So she would just right. kind of lie there and guzzle. Yeah, without and trying. So, yeah. So our midwives were like, she's she's gaining like a champ. I wasn't having pain. And then it was our my chiropractor in Toronto. Actually, you probably know Christina Bosner. Yes. Um, I would say she treats more like an osteo with... Um, yes. Yes, I refer many, many clients to her. And so she was, I brought her in to see her because she would have kind of gassiness, but she'd have her witching hour. And I was like, I'm just going to take her to Christina and see if there's some, you know, craniosacral work she could do. And she was like, did you know she has a tongue tie? And I was like, no. So she actually figured it out. And she had a really, I think she thought it wasn't painful because my daughter also had a really weak, like, Lash. Okay, she, yeah. She's like, if she was stronger, she's like, you would be in pain. Okay. So we ended up getting it clipped at um, or released at six weeks, and then we had to get it released again the following week by a pediatrician. Uh, both were by the same one, um, and he agreed because he said, not that getting it released is definitely distressful as a parent to be kind of be it there. It can be, yes. Yeah, but long term, we felt. Like, he was like, if you didn't do it now, he's like, and your milk supply goes down and she's not milking your breast, your breastfeeding is going to slowly dwindle and be gone sooner than you want. So that's why we made the decision. But I have a lot of moms who I know, they've decided that they, because it wasn't painful, they made the decision not to get it released. So do you see kind of both, I guess, both sides? I absolutely do. And I will always say to moms, there's no, first of all, there's no guarantee, number one, that it'll, it'll go better. So that's the tricky thing, right? It's not a a hard and fast science. So yes, if you get the tongue tie released, then your breastfeeding experience will be so much better. In other words, you will not be in pain and you will have good transfer of milk Um, because we can't guarantee it. Some people are hesitant to actually do it. Um, I'll always say the first thing they should do if they've decided not to do a tongue tie where we have seen that there is a tongue tie that's impacting breastfeeding is to get some good body work. So that's in the form of a pediatric chiropractor, pediatric osteopath or a cranial sacral therapist. So at the very least, the tongue tie, which is probably affecting the whole jaw structure, um, is is the only thing that is tethering the tongue to the base of the mouth. There is intention in the jaw and the neck um, and other parts of the mouth, and all those things connect deep into the body. So that would be the first step. And then, uh, and then I ask them to do their research. And really, at the end of the day, there are absolutely no downsides to doing a tongue tie. There are only upsides for a lifetime of better oral and not only hygiene, but dental development and, and uh, just the use of a tongue, which, which we now know there's just so much more to uh, tongues than we thought, uh, than, than we thought there, there was. So, um, so the, really the only downside is the, you know, the three to four seconds of pain that we have to, you know, uh, put baby through 
and then we bring them straight to the breast. The younger, obviously, the better. So if parents are making a decision, I really ask them to to make a decision when their baby's younger versus saying, oh, wait a couple of weeks, because really it is easier the younger they are. But I've had moms as, as late as three months um, when I've, you know, I've gone, their baby has started to refuse the breast because the milk supply has gone down. And then I've seen the tongue tie and said, this is as a result of insufficient milk removal over a period of three months. And now your baby is responding to that. Uh, And then we've had, we put moms on the medication and then subsequently release the tongue tie and then things turn around and start to go a bit better. But I did have one pretty amazing situation in, in clinic. We had a mom who had gone to a breastfeeding clinic in Toronto time and time and time again she was latching only with a nipple shield. She couldn't even latch her baby without a nipple shield because it was so excruciatingly painful. And even with the nipple shield, she was starting to say, forget it. I can't even do it. The chomp is so profound. And I saw her in clinic and I said, there's a posterior tongue tie. I can't believe you've lived through almost, I think baby was at least eight weeks old through two months of of all this work and going to this lactation clinic and we released the, the, the tongue tie and the baby went from only breastfeeding with a bottle because mom couldn't even put baby on with the nipple shield because it was so painful to exclusively breastfeeding right after the feed. And she never went back to the bottle. So we've seen some really profound results like that, that just there's an, enough of those, those types of cases that show me how much a tongue can make a difference to a breastfeeding experience. And um, do your research, as talk to the parents out there, do your research, do your body work. But really, if you still feel that the, the telltale signs that the tongue tie is affecting breastfeeding, um, it really is beneficial to get it released. And so, Taya, can you share, what are some tips that can actually help with milk production? Hmm. So I'd say the first thing that can help with milk production is a good latch. <laughs> so when I teach my prenatal breastfeeding classes or speak to moms postnatally, the number one solution to all breastfeeding problems is to make sure that your baby is latched well. So block ducts, make sure you get a good latch. Mastitis, better check that latch. Pain in the nipples, get good help with your latch. And milk supply is the same. So as we were talking about earlier, if you have a baby that is not sufficiently removing milk from the breast, then your milk supply will go down. And if you can find someone qualified to help you to latch the baby on better so they get more milk, you will inevitably get your baby more milk. However, sometimes we'll in clinics see people who were not aware that milk removal was crucial to, to milk supply. In other words, somebody said to them in the hospital, your baby is not doing well, you need to start formula. So they've started giving formula, but no one has informed them that they have to keep removing milk because milk is not going to be made if there's no milk coming out. So there's been some really just challenging cases in, in, in clinic and challenging for me because I just, I just am so frustrated that no one said, listen, you need to get a pump on there. You need to be hand expressing. So moms can go as, as long as 24 to 48 hours. We had a mom that went almost five days because she thought, oh, no, my baby's getting fed without realizing that her breastfeeding is going to be severely impacted by the fact that she went five days without removing milk. Um, so getting good latch help right away, recognizing that milk removal is the key to milk production. So if your baby's not latching, you need to be pumping or hand expressing. And then, of course, there are different galactagogues. So galactagogues are milk making herbs or teas or foods that can also help boost the production a little bit. Um, The foods are oatmeal. Uh, Brewer's yeast works really well. My sister who lives in Australia visited us when her son was about four months old. And she went back to Australia after a, a long visit and said, the brewer's yeast in my smoothie is the thing that for me makes the most amount of difference. And I had another client who, and I'll address this in a second, but the tea, she said, she she literally was like, I take, I have one cup of that tea and I am bursting at the seams. So different things work for different people. So the foods again are oatmeal, brewer's yeast, flax seeds work well as well. And then there's many different cultures that have their own foods. So many times I'll go to my Chinese clients' um, homes and they've had um, fish and papaya soup, uh, a broth that's made for them. Um, I've been uh, a, a Peruvian client. I said said that she that I saw that she drank quinoa water. So 
water that quinoa has been cooked in was something that in Peru they recommended women drink. So it's obviously full of protein and nutrients and things like that. So there's lots of those kind of um, cultural uh, um, uh, foods that can be incredibly helpful. Uh, and then there's lactation tea. So in the tea, there are things like blessed thistle and fenugreek, which are two popular herbs for milk supply, fennel, caraway, anise, and a whole bunch of other supporting herbs. And sometimes the teas themselves can be extremely helpful. And I'll say to moms to have about three to five cups of well-steeped tea. And then the actual herbs that we might add on if we feel milk production has suffered as a result of a poor latch or mom needs a little bit of an extra boost during a growth spurt um, are the herbs blessed thistle and fenugreek. And I've had personally a lot of success with goat's rue. Uh, so there are another a few other supporting herbs, shadavari, merengue, that also are, are helpful. But all of that comes with a caveat because herbs um, are still medica medications, even though they're natural. We have to make sure that we speak to our naturopath or our doctor about any contraindications. Um, so fenugreek is contraindicated in some conditions. Um, so that's found in the teas and in the herbs. Um, so something to speak to your doctor about um, and just make sure that what you're doing for your body is the right thing. And then finally, there is a medication called Domperidone. Sadly, not Domperignon because that would be a perfect world if we could take a couple <laughs> glasses of champagne to increase our supply. But um, Domperidone is a medication when uh, taken by breastfeeding mothers, it, uh, it, it produces more milk. It inhibits the dopamine levels in the brain and allows the prolactin to flourish and therefore, um, uh, uh, therefore increases supply. So sometimes we do put moms on that if we feel that supply has decreased to a point where, um, where, you know, really the big, the big guns are needed. Um, and, uh, and we do prescribe that in the clinic. Now, going back just to the herbs and the teas, or even just mm -hmm. the teas and the food that anyone could access, yeah. do you recommend um, moms almost start that ahead of time before there's an issue? Or how does that work? Like, what do you tend to recommend or even starting, you know, while they're still pregnant or what is the timing for those kind of things that you can just get in the store? So if I've had a mother who has had previous breastfeeding challenges with their first child or their second child, or if I have a mother who I've seen prenatally that has had some breast surgery, reduction, augmentation, or any kind of, um, any kind of removal of fibroids, cysts, et cetera, I will often say to them, have the teas, have the, the foods ready and start eating them right away. Uh, in the normal uh, breastfeeding mother, I probably wouldn't recommend that until I felt like there was a problem. Although there's really nothing wrong with pre-making some lactation cookies because you can combine the, the oatmeal, you can combine the, the brewer's yeast and the flax all in a delicious cookie with chocolate chips and all the other delicious things you want to add. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. But really, we, we want to reserve that for if there is an issue. To your, to your question about whether we, we could start that prenatally, milk production or lactogenesis too actually only starts with the, the delivery of the placenta. So not un until the placenta has come out of our body is there any sense in doing anything in regards to lactation. Um, so one, I guess as soon as the placenta came out, if there was an issue, we could have like a tea and a cookie ready. Um, but who's got time for that right after birth? Um, but really, it's only afterwards. And in general, I only tend to recommend it if I, if I felt that there's been uh, like a there's a concern, whether it's hormonal, whether it's previous breastfeeding issues, whether it's breast surgery. Uh, and then we would reserve the actual herbs to see um, uh, in later on to see whether whether they're necessary given the situation. While we're on the topic of milk production, what about the mm. other side of the coin where there might be oversupply? So I would say that true, true over oversupply I see in very few of my clients, what I do see is poor latch. So oftentimes when a baby is latched on to the breast and their chin is very close to the chest, they will have trouble accepting really fast flow. If you think about a fire hydrant coming at you, because for those moms that have breastfed or for those that haven't, sometimes the, 
the, the milk literally sprays out of the nipple and can like cross the room or, you know, spray the baby in their eyes. And if you feel something that fast was coming at you and you had your chin close to your chest or, 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 or even sometimes into the chest, I've seen babies, you're not going to be able to handle that flow. And so then moms think, oh my goodness, I have so much milk. My baby's pulling off the breast and choking. Whereas in reality, if the mom latched her baby on in such a way that baby was able to handle that flow and baby was able to grab enough of the breast tissue to beautifully undulate their tongue and their jaw was open. I always use the analogy. You want to look down at your baby and you want to ask yourself, could my baby be chugging a beer right now? And it's a terrible analogy with a baby, with a breastfed baby. I do get some strange looks, but I also get some chuckles like I did with you guys. Um, but can my baby chug a beer? Can my baby chug this bottle of water? If they can, then they're probably in a good position to breastfeed. But if their chin's close to their chest, then even with an undersupply, baby might choke back. So, um, so yeah, so there certainly is that case where moms think that they have an issue, but actually there isn't. It's a latching concern. And if there is, and I have had a few moms whose babies literally are drowned in milk, can finish a feed within seven minutes, even as a newborn, and have like milk literally dribbling out of their mouth, etc. But always you have to make sure that you see an, a good internationally board certified lactation consultant who will tell you, yes, that is the issue because sometimes it's under supply. Um, then there's lots of techniques. There's lying down. I've had moms lie literally flat on their back with babies latched on top of them. Um, there's even techniques where we'll lie mom on her side so that baby can easily dribble the milk out the side of their mouth onto the bed um, as the milk comes out at them fast if the if it's really that fast. And I've had only a couple of clients in my experience with that. So I think the first thing, if you suspect that that's what you have, is to get good help just to ensure that it's not that it's not a, a latch related issue. I love that. That has been exactly my experience this time around breastfeeding. Before I saw a lactation consultant a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking that my supply was really aggressive and the letdown was so fast. Right. And she was like, make sure that that chin is up. And similar to what you said yes. about baby chugging a beer, which I'm going to take with me through the rest of today <laughs> and tonight. She said, think about when you or we drink a cup of water and we tilt upwards in order to right. do so. So that's been helpful for me too. So I appreciate you saying that. A question from one of our listeners, Emily. She is wondering the differences between on-demand feeding and schedule feeding, especially in the first few mm -hmm. weeks. On-demand feeding worked for her, but she wonders why so many care providers recommend a schedule. What say you? I'd be skeptical of any care providers who were trying to get us to schedule feeds. So babies need to be fed on demand. Um, and it's just the same as us. If we want to drink something, we want to drink it. If we want to eat it, we want to eat it. We don't really want to be kept waiting. And this is oftentimes why babies will get hangry. Um, and it'll be more challenging to feed them. But more importantly, why we breastfeed a baby on demand, beside it being just the kinder, nicer way when they're hungry, they need to feed. And this leads to, um, to happier, more content babies is that they will tend to manage perfectly the composition of milk that they take in throughout the day. And the milk composition changes all the time. We never really have to worry about, uh, and we'll read this all over the internet, you know, hind milk and fore milk and making sure that a baby stays on one side for a long time before we switch them. Really what matters is that we're breastfeeding them on demand and that we keep them we keep them drinking. So they're actually getting milk. Um, so, so we really know that, um, that they'll manage the composition of the milk, which will lead to a better digestion, um, a happier baby, a baby that takes more naps. And I think the important thing about on-demand feeding to remember is that every body has a different breast storage, uh, every, every breast has, has different, um, uh, storage capacity. So there might be, someone who maybe a maybe a care provider who says well you know what i only had to breastfeed my baby every four hours so therefore what is right for mine must be right for yours but she might have had a really really large breast storage capacity she might have ha tanked her baby up with so much milk the baby was able to last for a long period of time i like many of my clients have a lower breast storage capacity so my my little girls really had to go on every two two and a half 
you know, I would say maximum three and a half hours before they were ready for the next feed. And, um, and knowing that, uh, that, that, that is the better option was, was good for me to know, but also for me to impart to my clients because it just showed that it's normal. It's not, everybody's body and baby is completely different. Um, on demand feeding also will, uh, will keep our prolactin levels at a higher level throughout the day. Uh, it also is a great way if we're breastfeeding our babies whenever they need to, and they're with us all the time to do things like the lactation amenorrhea method, which is when we can, um, we can prevent getting pregnant and use breastfeeding as a means with which to do that. So there's many different advantages to it. And, and scheduled feeds really just makes babies more angry. It's really, it's going the way of the dodo. I'm surprised that there's still people out there that are insisting or even recommending that women do do that because it, uh, we do know that it's not ideal for our infants. And would you say, cause you talked about kind of how with your daughters, it was two and a half, three hours and other people it's longer, other people are shorter. Are there any amounts of times that would signal that there is an issue? Like if you're mm-hmm. having every hour or more than that, or yes. what would be some tips with that? Yeah. Great question. So absolutely. I would say that when I hear that a mother has been breastfeeding every hour and a half and then she puts her baby down, baby wakes up in half an hour and then she's feeding for another 45 minutes and then she thinks baby's done and she puts the baby down. And again, it's like this, this hamster wheel of waking and sleeping and not knowing are you, um, that is an issue because a baby should drink effectively and efficiently, get everything they need from the breast and be done in a reasonable amount of time, I would say maximum you'd be spending on the whole feed would maybe be 40 minutes. Maybe it could be a little bit longer, could be way, way shorter, but it shouldn't be this long, laborious feed. And then baby should sleep and you should all get a break to heal and to sleep and do all those good things. On the other hand, I have been to some newborn visits where my first question is always, how many feeds has baby had in the past 24 hours? And I'm always a bit alarmed when parents say, oh, about five. Because really, we know that our newborn babies need between eight and 12 feeds in a 24-hour period. So five feeds is probably not getting that baby enough milk. And then as we probe further, baby's usually not peeing enough or pooing enough. And usually, uh, they're very lethargic. Or on the flip side, they're extremely fussy, um, and more like on the the hangry side of things. Um, so so really, the, the rule is really no rules to breastfeeding. But the the general idea is eight to twelve feeds in a twenty four hour period. Feeds can be quick if they're efficient, um, but they can last a little bit um, with newborns. But then when the baby is done, they really are full of milk and they can sleep for for a, a good amount of time um, to give everybody a break. And then they should. If they're lying within an arm's reach of us, which they should be, uh, we should we will hear them as they wake up and they start to make their gentle cue, cues and movements. And then we bring them to the breast again. And we do the same thing. Um, and uh, and that's generally when we know things are going right. Feeds around the clock or too few feeds are a concern. And we've definitely had a few questions about pumping. And so our first one here is from Sarah. And she was wondering... How to transition feeding and pumping for when babies start sleeping longer stretches? And second part of that was how to prevent mastitis in that particular situation. Mm-hmm. So to that end, I would say that if we have been respecting baby and their sleep and their needs for um, connection and um, attachment, then generally what's going to happen is we are probably going to find that our milk supply just figures it out. Our baby is sleeping in close proximity to us, which the baby should for the first six months of life. They probably will, if they are going to sleep for longer stretches, are going to gonna kind of move into that in a gradual way. It's not like all of a sudden they're going to sleep eight hours if the night before they were sleeping and waking every two hours. So generally the milk production will kind of move smoothly with that transition. Um, if there's a situation where mom is not around baby, um, then, uh, then, then that is usually when there is, uh, more of a concern. Um, I, I tend to, to hesitate moms wake up at certain points in the night to pump. 
Um, if baby has naturally dropped the feed, generally, if it's if it is engorgement, what we want to do is just just maybe remove a tiny bit of milk with hand expression. If if it's the engorgement that's waking you up, because we never know when our baby's going to wake up. Like the baby might wake up in another hour, and then you've pumped your whole breast, and what milk then is the baby going to get? So it's tricky. Um, preventing engor- uh, mastitis in in those situations is just to always make sure that we are compressing the breast when baby's feeding so that we are cutting down on any block ducts. And as baby starts to sleep more, technically we're sleeping more and sleep should be a means with which to actually boost our immune system. But other things that we can do is just to make sure if we do feel, um, if, we, if, we're, if we're afraid of it, and usually it's only people that have had mastitis that I would really be concerned with, um, but boosting our immune system with diff- like vitamin C, garlic, um, anything else that, that women take for, um, for mastitis. But I found that generally babies and moms tend to kind of move together in that longer sleep pattern and milk seems to, it seems to figure itself out rather than us having to necessarily start waking to pump just because baby isn't feeding at that time. Can you expand on what you just mentioned about compressing the breast? So when I, besides dealing, helping moms, uh, you know, get a very good latch, when I go to um, home visits, one of the most important things I'm teaching is is feeding management. And what I mean by that is being able to tell that our baby is getting milk at the breast and getting it efficiently and effectively. And to that end the one most powerful thing that I'll leave my clients with is the ability to see the difference between a suck and a drink because every movement of a baby's jaw is not them getting a big gulp of milk. They need to suckle and do non-nutritive suckling um, to get a drink, which is nutritive suckling. And so to that end, when parents can tell the difference between a suck and a drink, it can be extremely powerful because then let's say the mom who has oversupply and flow, she can see that the baby's going drink, 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 drink. And then in five minutes, it's absolutely possible that baby could be done. And then the mom whose baby feeds is is longer. I'm not even going to say how long because it's arbitrary. I don't, it doesn't matter that baby, if they're consistently drinking, that's okay because they're drinking and that's what matters. Um, And what a compression does is it helps to speed up the feed. So if a baby goes onto the breast and they're drinking really well on the one side, but then towards the end of the feed, they start to do just more of that non-nutritive suckling, those little sucks rather than big drinks, the first thing we can do is just grab a handful of breast tissue. Don't hurt yourself, but squeeze gently into the breast. And that can help move the milk more rapidly through those ducts into baby and can keep the baby drinking. But then eventually when we've compressed perhaps all around the breast and we haven't seen that there's been a change in the amount that the baby is drinking, they're drinking still very slowly um, and, and, and maybe even like getting a little dozy, we say to ourselves, okay, it's clear to me that you're still wanting milk, but you're not getting any right now, even as I help you. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to switch sides. And, and all of that helps get more milk into baby in less time. It helps to get more milk out of the breast. More milk out of the breast means more milk is made and ultimately gives mom's in this very esoteric thing that is breastfeeding. Like, you know, I take my baby to the breast and I hope for the best. I don't know, are they getting milk or are they? It gives some control back to the parents. I know what you're doing there, little Jack. You are drinking well. Oh, you're not drinking? Let me compress. Oh, you're not drinking now that I'm compressing? Let's switch sides. And babies can switch sides as many times as is necessary for them to be done, whether it's one side or 10 sides. Yeah, so cool. This is something that we've been practicing this time around breastfeeding because my lactation mm. consultant just taught us this a couple of weeks ago and didn't do it at all the first time around because I didn't know about it. So yeah, I think it is so true what you said about it can just seem like, okay, we just put baby on the breast and we just wait and see what happens. Yeah, That's cross it. fingers. Yeah. <laughs> this is another question about pumping from Amanda. And she says, before you plan to return to work, how early should you start pumping and storing? Say baby is eight months old. Okay. And I'm assuming returning to work would be 
one year or mom will be returning to work at eight months? I don't know specifically from this question. Okay, I'll, I'll address both. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll address both. First of all, if mom's returning to work at a year, we shouldn't have to bother about pumping because at that stage, baby can have enough feeds during morning and when at pickup and overnight that we shouldn't necessarily need to pump. But to the mom's question, if she's returning to work at eight months, and I work with so many mom, you know, moms that are entrepreneurs that work for themselves um, or who have jobs that they really love and want to return to, they they will be returning pretty pretty soon. So if this is the case, I would usually say get breastfeeding off to a really good start. Just get into a groove where you feel, wow, this has gotten easy. I'm enjoying this. And then think about getting the pump out and, and sterilizing. And then you could consider starting as early as two or three months if you found that you wanted to have a store of milk available uh, but oftentimes, I'll just say a couple months before you go back to work, you could start the body used to the the pump, and um, you would then just pump after the first feed of the day. So you would feed the baby, and then pump for 15 minutes, get what you get, and then you would store that in the freezer. Uh, and then when you return to work, you would then give the baby the freshest milk. So you would pump each time the baby was, let's say, feeding at home three times, you would pump, and then that baby would get that fresh pumped milk and the, the the milk in the freezer would just be for on the odd occasion if you were I'm going to be late home from work and there's no milk there it can be defrosted etc because the freshest milk that's just been refrigerated is the best milk um, so I usually tell moms to if they're returning to work early to not panic too much about it at the beginning but just to just to enjoy the experience and then when you feel you're ready and just the whole body and, and your whole energy um, uh, is is a little um, a little back to normal. Then you can start the 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 whole routine just so that your body's getting used to it, and just so you have a little bit stored up in the freezer for emergencies. That's so helpful. And I'm curious too. Speaking about pumping, because I know Peter Rowe in the community I'm in, there actually is um, a class in the community about pumping, like pumping 101. Because I think a lot of moms just have, again, similar to nursing, don't have the information about pumping. So do you find, do you work with a lot of moms as a lactation consultant about the pumping aspect of things? In my, in my prenatal classes, I tend to ask moms to wait to purchase a pump before, before birth. So uh, many people are purchasing, you know, $500 pumps before they even give birth without the knowledge of whether they're even going to want a pump or whether their baby's even going to take a bottle for that matter. And when a baby also comes out of the, you know, or the hospital and they're not lacking, um, a run-of-the-mill kind of pump that you could buy, even the most expensive one, tends not to be powerful enough to protect the milk supply. So if moms even purchased a pump, they're still going to daily go out and have to rent a hospital grade pump, which are thousands of dollars. And you rent them from different nursing and maternity in, um, in, in the city that you're in or the hospital or, or a shopper's home care, et cetera. Um, and you're going to have to, you know, pump with that, with that very heavy duty machine. So, so really waiting until you know why and when you'll be using the pump is important for the mom who's going back to work early chances are it's probably good to invest in a good double electric pump before birth. But I have had some moms who have really expensive pumps and then they just get a, they get a hand pump, you know, because they're like, oh, I'm just going for the day. I'm not taking that big. And they find they get so much more with a hand pump or they realize, you know what? I, I just need this, this occasionally for the odd date night and a single electric or a hand pump or even hand expression works really well. So I work with a lot of moms who do pump, but a lot of moms who find they probably didn't need the luxury pump that they thought they did. And a, a regular pump would like, or a cheaper pump would probably do, um, do the trick. I, I do have some moms who um, either take nipple breaks because it's very painful or who uh, even make the decision to, just pump and bottle feed their babies. And so we just talk about logistically what that would look like. 
pump every time the baby feeds is ideal, but coming up with a pumping schedule can also be something that, um, that is helpful. Uh, and then, you know, just trying different techniques and things like that to make sure that maximum milk production is, is coming out. Usually a pump is never as powerful as a well-latched baby. So milk supply tends to diminish a little, a uh, little more rapidly with an exclusively pumping mom. Um, but I absolutely am. And, and, and all internationally uh, uh, certified board lactation consultants will be able to help moms uh, to maneuver the pumping questions that they have. That's great. And that's so many, uh, yeah, because we get a lot of questions about pumping too. So those are all great tips. Um, our next question, which I love too, is actually from Andra. And she would love a checklist of when to stop Googling and problem solving and get yourself to a lactation <laughs> consultant for first time moms. This one is all about the gut. And I think that we tend to not really listen to our gut as closely as we should. But as new moms, I think we, we know our babies. They've been growing inside us for nine months, generally. And we know, we know when things are not, are not going right. Um, and I see some of my second-time clients, and they'll say, you know, I probably should have called you last week. I'm pretty sure that last week I just had this feeling that the things were not going right, but I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to, maybe I'm just going to stick with it. And then now here I am. So I think going with your gut is important, but anytime there is really sore nipples that, you know, you tweak the latch, it's just, it's just not getting better. Anytime there's breast pain, uh, anytime you suspect there's a block duct or baby is reacting to the breast in a way that um, that is that is upsetting you because you feel that but I really want to breastfeed you and that could be because of block ducts or flows or tongue ties anytime of course a care provider like a healthcare provider is maybe pushing um, supplementation when you don't feel comfortable or when you do feel okay I do have to supplement but I'd rather not um, those are kind of some checklist items of saying okay now, I need to move beyond maybe even what my healthcare practitioner is is providing me in terms of advice, but but speaking to someone who's an expert on breastfeeding. A question for our pregnant moms who might be listening in. Would you recommend that they take a course or a workshop, or is there specific online information you recommend that they should know about ahead of time to help them prepare for breastfeeding? Yes. As I spoke about earlier, I think prenatal breastfeeding education is crucial. And some, sometimes that can be as simple as heading online. I love the resources at um, IBC Online. Uh, it, it, that's the International Breastfeeding uh, Center or the Jack Newman Clinic where I studied and graduated from. He has some wonderful, not just handouts um, or information sheets, but also videos. So you can watch videos on drinking versus sucking. You can, um, you can even watch a tongue tie release on there. So heading online, checking that out, reading your books, um, attending a prenatal breastfeeding class. And even if you can only attend one at your hospital, and usually those are not taught by lactation consultants, it's usually a nurse. Um, but even that is better than going into it blind. But then also, as I was saying, in regards to attending a La Leche League meeting or asking a friend um, that is breastfeeding to, to, to actually uh, to actually see it is, is that, is just that watching a baby breastfeed. We've moved so, so much in the society that we don't see a woman breastfeeding at a, with a bare breast. It's usually with a nursing shirt on or with a cover or they've gone to a nursing lounge and we're kind of losing that in our society. I remember at the cottage, I just constantly, because there's a whole bunch of little, you know, like, well, they, they're not so little anymore. They are, we're teenagers but breastfeeding out in public, I wanted these young girls to see somebody breastfeeding and not to have to feel like you need to hide it. And I would have been happy if they were like, hey, how exactly is that baby doing that? Because I think that that is pretty powerful to actually see a baby suckling and, and, and doing it well. So preparation is key. And I, I'm really passionate about that. And I, um, I've been running my prenatal breastfeeding classes for, for over eight years. And I also teach um, breastfeeding education to healthcare providers and doulas as well, so that they can provide that information to their clients pre and postnatally um, in in a way that uh, that that again moms can feel prepared for and get that help right away as soon as baby is born. 
And do you ever do sessions, Taya, over Skype for moms who aren't near you? I do. Yes, I do. In fact, I, I have done that some in Aust- from Australia. It's a little bit of a logistical challenge with time. <laughs> and also, um, I've done some um, from uh, the UK. And they do work out well. Um, the one reason I love the in-person versus the online breastfeeding classes is that when I teach in-person, we practice with the lap, with, with dolls. And we actually hands-on, I you know, take the doll and there's a lot to the muscle memory that comes from those little, those little tips we heard about earlier, like chin away from chest and, you know, the pressure between the shoulders versus the head and all of those kinds of things. So there is something powerful about attending a course where you can actually play with dolls and watch videos, things like that. But certainly, um, uh, I do have like a, a more of a, of a Skype focused or kind of online focused one on one prenatal breastfeeding class that I that I do teach. Um, and then I just usually ask someone to grab like a teddy bear or something, and we'll we'll practice as best we can without me being there hands on. Amazing. And for those, we have listeners from all around the world, and everyone knows now that you're from Toronto, Canada. Um, so we're wondering, I'm sure listeners are wondering about fees involved with seeing a lactation consultant. Mm. So specifically in Canada, like private versus public, and then as well, if you have information about in the U.S. or any other areas in the world, I'm sure our listeners would appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So I would I would say to, to, to listeners to definitely... Um, go online and look at finding an internationally board certified lactation consultant. There's many, many people who provide lactation support, but you really want to have someone who has spent years and years and years of their life and then hours and hours and hours uh, writing an exam. I think the exam was like six hours. And I remember I had like, I think my daughter was 10 months old and I had to take multiple breastfeeding breaks because she couldn't have lasted that long without me. Um, but look for look for a certified lactation consultant, first of all. And then there are different, um, like in Canada specifically, there are some breastfeeding clinics that are partially OHIP funded. Um, Kid Crew is the one that I work at. And so uh, the price range for that is um, uh, we have follow-ups for $45 and then initial um, hour-long sessions are $65. Some lactation uh, clinics are more expensive. Some are fully OHIP funded. Often they are not... Um, staffed by an internationally board certified lactation consultant though it's usually um, public health nurses which can be excellent as well depending on how well they have um, uh, studied breastfeeding but sometimes it can be hit or miss Um, and then in private practice we generally you'll see those people they'll come into your to your uh, hospital room or your home Um, the prices will range Um, I'm not sure how much it'll it would be in the states but usually it's it's around 150 to 200 dollars for a home visit, but your lactation consultant is generally there with you for an hour and a half to two hours, and most of us will provide um, telephone, uh, email, and text support as well, which you wouldn't get in a clinic setting, and that can be really helpful if you're just wanting to ensure that things are going well. And then you have like just those little questions, even if it's about pumping or oh, is this normal or what kind of bra should I get, etc. And, uh, and then around the world, you will also find lactation consultants. My, my sister lives in Australia and she found some excellent resources, uh, in her kind of smaller town in, uh, in Australia. So it's just a matter of looking and finding someone that's qualified and, and also maybe attending some prenatal breastfeeding classes or prenatal sessions so that you can, you can kind of have a rapport with someone, someone that you feel that you like, someone that you feel you, you want to work with because it is, it is pretty intimate. I've helped a couple of my friends and, you know, we're sitting there and, and really we're saying, I never thought in this situation that you would be examining my breasts, but I'm like, yep, that's what I do. Um, so you want to also be working with someone that you're very comfortable in that situation. Talk to us more about what the training is like to become a lactation consultant and that six-hour exam you mentioned that you mm-hmm. had to go through. Yes. So um, so different lactation consultants have come to it in different ways. I was a healthcare practitioner before I became a lactation consultant. And now there used to be – there was a time frame where you didn't need to have all of those additional courses, all those additional additional health practitioner um, courses before you took the exam. But now you do. So if someone was coming to it and they were, say, 
it was a corporate job. And then they had a baby and they, they loved breastfeeding. They wanted to be a lactation consultant. They'd have to go back to school and do a number of university level, um, developmental, um, ethical, all a myriad of different uh, courses. And then they would also have to do, um, I think it's 90 hours of lactation specific courses and then um, have a number of hours of clinical care. So I believe with, with myself, it was a thousand hours of working directly with breastfeeding um, uh, dyads and then writing the exam. Uh, so for me, it took five years, kind of from start to finish, but in there was a couple of babies. Um, and, but other people can fast track if you were a nurse or you have um, a lot of hours that you can use. You could certainly fast track that. You just need to get your, um, your certification hours for your lactation education. Um, I would just check at the um, ILCA I think I believe it's the um, IBC. Actually, no, it's IBCLE uh, website, as that will give you the recommendation or the the necessities that you would need, um, and they do change frequently. So, so, so look back. I know even within the span that I've been uh, that I've been um, studying lactation and where I got certified things have changed a little bit. Um, but certainly many, many clinical hours, um, many hours spent helping or observing with breastfeeding dyads and, uh, and then, and then studying for the exam. And then we have to recertify every five years with continuing education certifications. And then every 10 years we have to rewrite that exam. Sounds really intense. Yes. (laughs) Wonderful. Wonderful. (laughs) You you get to relearn all the things you love over and over again. And so, Taya, how can our listeners find out more about you online, but also those in Toronto who could see you in person? Sure. So my website is tayagriffin.com. I teach prenatal breastfeeding classes at Toronto Yoga Mamas, which is in the east end of Toronto, but also at West End Mamas, which is in the west end of Toronto. Um, And I do some complimentary info sessions there as well at those locations. So moms can just come and ask their questions in an hour long session. Um, And then I work at Kid Crew, which is a clinic at Bathurst and St. Clair. That's just kidcrew.com. And usually you could find me around the city. I've, I've, um, run various, um, breastfeeding cafes, um, and often will be at various baby shows. And I love to answer any questions that moms have and they they can feel free to head to my website to ask any questions. I, I, I welcome questions from the community because it gives me a chance to, to continue to learn. And everybody always starts off with, so this is a really stupid question or, Oh, this is like, this is kind of a dumb question or, you know, the, the, it, oh, I, I don't know if, I, know if, if I, I should be asking you, but, and honestly, I've probably heard it before. And if I haven't, I'd like to hear it so that I can continue to learn and help moms that have interesting and diverse breastfeeding um, challenges, because that just makes me a better lactation consultant in the end. Anything else, Taya, that you want to share that we haven't covered yet? Just the one thing that um, that I wanted to address a little bit was the weaning process because, you know, we, we talk about, um, we talk about the fact that right at the beginning, I mentioned babies should breastfeed exclusively for the first six months of life. And then they should continue to feed for, for two years and beyond introducing complimentary, complimentary food at uh, six months. But what's really interesting about, um, about Canada is that we, but moms tend to kind of go back to work at a year and that that often leads to weaning at a year. It's almost as like as if they're like, okay, well, I'm going back to work and therefore my baby should wean. And it's interesting that I speak to um, many, uh, many moms of, you know, older generations who only got nine months of that leave because that's only how much they got. And when their baby was nine months, that's when they wean. So it's just kind of this very arbitrary weaning process. And I, I'm interested to see now for those moms who have opted to take an 18 month mat leave, whether they'll say, okay, well it's 18 months now. So now, now I'm going to wean like all of a sudden the, the, the going back to work babies all of a sudden should know, well, sorry, that's it. But babies would prefer to continue to breastfeed. And I always will um, speak about Kath, um, Catherine Detweiler's work. She's a PhD that's done a lot of work on, uh, on weaning and, and human lactation. And she equ- 
she kind of looked at non-human primates and saw when they met their major milestones, um, and when they got their first molars, when they doubled their birth weight, uh, when they reached, uh, you know, reproductive, um, when they reached uh, maturity uh, in different ways. And she found that uh, not only does the, the human immune system only really um, begin to truly mature at around six years, but when compared to, to human uh, non-human primates, the natural age of weaning is probably between two and seven years of age um, for 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 humans and, uh, and and non-human primates. So I think if we were all left on a desert island, and you know no one was going to judge us, and no one had to go back to work, uh, and we just had to care for our babies, we would probably continue to breastfeed them for a lot longer than we are. And there's a special uh, there's a special bond and relationship uh, when they are older and also when they can begin to speak and uh, and tell you what they need and tell you what it means to them, etc. And so to the nursing mom who is enjoying breastfeeding their baby at the year mark, who thinks, well, I guess I should stop because, well, my baby's a year. I, I urge them to to keep going and it doesn't it doesn't have to mean that they need to do it all day. They don't need to pump when they go back to work. But in the morning and in the evening, it can be a lovely ritual, uh, and we can continue to breastfeed for for quite some time for not just a means with which to mother our babies, but um, a way to also provide those uh, additional uh, uh, immune uh, component um, uh, properties that help them to fight off illnesses, etc. Uh, and I actually asked my younger daughter uh, before this to tell me what she remembers it tasting like. And it's amazing when you actually can speak to children who, who have nursed. And she said, it tastes like chocolate, mummy. It's the most delicious thing that I've ever tasted. And it's really special to speak, to be able to actually talk to someone who, who remembers what, what it was and what, and, and what it meant to them. So so if you do have any questions about even the weaning process, whether you want to wean at six months or whether you're, you're, you're questioning how you would continue, how it would look like when you went back to work, or if you, well, I'm going to be away for two weeks, what will it mean, what will it mean for when I get back, or et cetera, then that's another, um, another aspect that I'm happy to, to chat to moms about. And that's normally why I see moms usually kind of after the year mark uh, in regards to, um, to mother's breastfeeding experiences. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Taya, for your expertise and answering all these questions. I know our listeners are going to take a lot away today um, from this episode. So thank you. And I'm sure many of them will be checking out our show, show notes, which will have all the links to um, your website and the resources that you recommended from your site. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight to chat to you both. And I, I especially love that there was a baby breastfeeding in the time that we've spent together was just so appropriate. Those little like noises were just delightful. Um, so thank you for that because I can't get enough of that. And yes, um, I just welcome anybody to reach out to me and um, ask me any questions that they have. On the next episode of To Birth and Beyond, we talk with Rachel Schwartzman. She is a naturopathic doctor and birth doula out of the Toronto, Canada region. We talk with Rachel about her work combining these roles as a naturopath and birth doula and how she is able to support birthing people in a really unique way. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 